The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Listen as we hear from God's Word. This is what the Lord has said in Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples. And will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephraim. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them. And embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Manasseh, excuse me, on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my long life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, you truly are one who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and rich and steadfast love. We come before You this morning as Your people, and we come before You with bowed heads, but we come not in shame as though we should hide from You. We come not before You in fear and trembling as though we're afraid of You. We come before You recognizing You are who You are. You are a God who is merciful. A God who takes great joy in withholding what we rightfully deserve. And a God who is gracious, who takes great pleasure in pouring out upon us 
your blessing that we do not deserve. You are in fact slow to anger. You are rich in love. We come before you with full confidence that in spite of our sin, in spite of our failures, in spite of our of our lack of ability to live up to your holy standards, you still love us. You still take joy to bless us. And by the blood of your Son, Jesus, you take great joy in forgiving us. And so we come recognizing our sin. We come understanding the seriousness of that and confessing it before you. But we come recognizing your smile. Recognizing that you're not in heaven waiting just to zap us, but you take pleasure in loving us and being gracious to us and being kind to us and in forgiving us and casting our sin as far as the east is from the west. And it's because of such things that we come with joy in our hearts this morning to worship you. We come with smiles on our faces, realizing, Lord, that life is hard and perhaps for many this week has been hard. But you are wonderful and you are gracious and you help us. It's true what we've sung already, that all of the true longings, the deepest longings of our heart have already been granted in what you've ordained. Oh, the world around us, Lord, dangles before our faces, things that appeal to our appetites, things that we would desire, experiences that we would be drawn to. All sorts of temporary joys that captivate our eyes and our hearts and our passions. But you, O oh God, fulfill our deepest longings. The blessings you bring to our life are not temporary, but they're lasting. And you know what our deepest longings are. You know what our deepest needs are, and you fill them every day. A longing to know you, a longing to be known by you. A longing to be able to walk through life knowing that it's hard, but that we don't face it alone because you're with us. A longing to be able to have confidence in our hearts when life is hard. But we're able to face it with confidence because we know you go before us and you walk with us and you're behind us. That you're a shield around us, our protector. That man can do nothing to us apart from your providential care. The longing to know that at the end of the day you will meet every one of our needs according to your glorious riches and we never have to wonder if we'll have enough because you fill us daily. Today and you've promised to do so tomorrow. So Lord, as we, as we think about these things this morning, we pray you would just cause us to cast away from our minds the cares and the anxieties that we've brought into the room the things that cause us to worry, the things that cause us to be afraid, the things that cause us to grieve. And focus our sights on you, the one who fills every true longing and supplies every single need. We look to you this morning. We smile toward you this morning because we feel your love in this place. And as we open your word, and you speak to us through it this morning. We have eager hearts. We're anxious to hear what you would say to us. We're anxious to hear your word taught and expounded before us. And we pray that through it, Lord, you would draw us to yourself. That you would expose areas of our life that need work. And then you would fill us to be able to walk out of here with joy in our hearts. With a fresh commitment to serving you and loving you. And walking with you. We thank you for our brother Roger who's come, who's prepared to open your word and teach it to us this morning. Fill him with your spirit as he comes to teach. Speak through him that we might hear it loud and clear. Our hearts are open and our ears are attentive. Speak, O oh Lord, for your people listen. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Are we good with audio? I think I got the signal. And there we go. There we go. 
Pastor Greg has been leading us in a study of the book of Hebrews, the letter to Hebrews. So let's turn there. Let's turn to Hebrews this morning, chapter 11 and verse 21. Hebrews 11 and verse 21. Now, if you've been paying attention, my secret is out. The last several messages I have been preaching from Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about Moses. We talked about Gideon. Now, today we're going to do the same thing, and it just happens to fit where we are in our study today, although I'm going to jump a little forward. And we're only going to study one verse, one verse. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, where we read, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Let us bow in worship this morning. As we bow now before you, Father, ready to hear your word revealed to us through your spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you, our strength, and our Redeemer. family was driving home from church one Sunday morning, parents in the front, kids in the back seat, when five-year-old Billy, out of the blue, said, Dad, how come there's so many people in church with white hair? Dad, wisely, responded by saying, that's interesting. Why do you think that is? What's what's all that about? Billy said, well, you know, in our church there are a lot of old people. Billy's dad responded again, wisely. Yeah, what do you think that's all about? Why do you think that is? Dead silence. And a moment later, Billy, screwing up all the wisdom his five-year-old mind could come up with, said, well, I guess it's because... They know they're going to die, and they want to get ready. To which Billy's father responded very wisely, Yeah, maybe they're the smartest ones of all. This morning, we're going to study one of those old guys, Jacob. And we're going to study him as he faced imminent death. And we're going to ask the question, how did Jacob face it? Without fear, with confidence, in faith. How did he do it? Now somebody says, Roger, come on. It's the weekend. It's August. It's going to be 93 degrees out there today. Kids aren't even back in school yet. People aren't even home from vacation. And you're going to ask us to think about death? Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to ask you to do. And I'm going to ask you to do it for four very good reasons. One, you're going to die. And so am I. Death is the one universal experience that everyone in this room shares. 
What does the Bible say in Hebrews again? It is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes judgment. It's the one subject that nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to face, and nobody wants to think about. And that's exactly why we have to face it. The second reason is because we are all afraid of it by nature. How does the book of Hebrews again put it? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 says, and you're probably familiar with this, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. No one wants to face it because everybody is afraid of it. And that's exactly why we need to face it. But there's a third reason why we need to face it, and that is because Christianity has the answer to it. And only Christianity has the answer. Only the Bible. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of God in Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 2. Since we, men and women, are all of flesh and blood, the Lord Jesus Christ shared our humanity. Why? So that by his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those of us who through fear of death live in lifelong bondage. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And we are the only ones who know that because the Bible is the only place that speaks of it. The Lord Jesus Christ saves us from sin, judgment, and death. That's why he said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that all who look to him might be healed, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever should believe in him will not die, but have eternal life. And that is how we face death. And brethren, if you get nothing else out of the message today, that's it. Only we can face it without fear, in faith. But there's another reason, a fourth reason, why I'm going to ask you to think about death today. And that is because we actually have in the Bible an example of a man who did it. We have a real-life historical example of someone who knew he was going to die and faced it without fear in faith. We have the example before us today. Now that's surprising that the writer to the Hebrews would pick Jacob. Because if you and I, knowing a little bit about the life of Jacob, were to pick some incident in his life that would illustrate great faith, we wouldn't pick that. We might pick... That story of, of Jacob's ladder, you remember that? And in Genesis chapter 28, when he was at Luz, and God met him and blessed him there. How great and awesome is this place, goes the hymn about that incident. We might pick that. Or we might pick that, that incident in Genesis 32 where Jacob was wrestling with God for the blessing. Isn't that part of the Christian life? Wrestling with God? Isn't that how you live by faith so often? Wrestling with God? We would pick that. But the writer to the Hebrews picks an incident that we normally read right over and don't even notice. But the event he chose shows not only is living in faith important, but so is dying in faith. You see, Paul said, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I live by faith. But you see, faith, to be real, must persevere to the end. It endures to the end. And no matter where we are in life's cycle, little five-year-old Billy 
his dad, or even an old age like Jacob, faith has one great last act to do, and that is in the face of death. We live unto the Lord. Let us die unto the Lord. Well, how do we do that? How do we show faith at that time? How do we honor the Lord in death? And here we have the one great example in the Scripture on how to face death, imminent death, without fear, in faith. Now let's set the context for this verse. What we have here is Jacob in Egypt. This occurs about 1700 B.C. You remember how Jacob and all of the house of Israel, all of his sons and their families came down to Egypt during the famine. Think of it. At this point in history, basically every true believer on earth was in one country, Egypt, in one place. And now Jacob has grown old. He is told that his son Joseph is coming and he's going to bring his two grandsons with him, little boys that Jacob had never seen. And this description, Pastor Greg ran, uh, read in your hearing a few minutes ago. It's all in chapter 48 of Genesis. So what I'm going to ask you to do is keep your fingers in Hebrews chapter 11, our verse, but also mark Genesis 48. So we're going to be going back and forth. So make sure you can go back and forth with me as we do that. Now, there are two parts of this account that bear note. One is the timing of it. Jacob is near death. In Hebrews 11 and verse 21, we read, By faith Jacob, when dying. That means he is in the process of dying. The time of death is near. He doesn't have much more time. He knows it's coming. The other is the place. Now, you will notice in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, if you go back in Genesis, it shows Jacob in this kind of situation twice. Once in Genesis 47, once in Genesis 48. And the Hebrew for the place or the posture of Jacob can be translated either bed or staff. The consonants in Hebrew are the same. It all depends on which vowels are used. So when the rabbis who were translating the Hebrew into the Greek for the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, came to these verses, they translated it with the Greek word staff or rod. And that's what we see in Hebrews 11:21. It could be either one. So the picture here that is given to us in Hebrews 11 is Jacob with the little strength that he had pulling himself up. It was all that he could do to sit up and then leaning on his staff with his last remaining strength spoke the words that you heard Pastor Greg read this morning. Now what does the writer to the Hebrews want us to see? First, you will notice that in facing death, Jacob was prepared. Jacob's ready. Death did not take him by surprise. Now, when Jacob was told, Joseph's coming, your son's coming, oh, and by the way, he's bringing his little boys with him, Jacob immediately knew what was going on. This is it. This is it. Here they come. I don't, I don't get a visit from them very often. But the family's coming. The word's out. Grandpa is near death. Here he comes. And he's bringing the grandchildren with him. 
Jacob knew exactly what he was going to do. Now, how did he know that? Because he thought about it ahead of time. Jacob had put his house in order. He got ready. It didn't catch him by surprise. Jacob had a plan. And when the news came, he knew exactly what he was going to do and what he was going to say. Now, that's extraordinary. Just stop right there. That is extraordinary. Why? How many people do you know today that do that? And I would suggest to you that that doesn't happen very often. What is the attitude toward death that we see around us today? Well, it's no different than it was when the psalmist wrote Psalm 49. So if you would, turn there for a moment. You can find Psalm 49. This is a psalm which describes how the unbeliever looks at death. And it's written from the point of view of a believer and how the believer looks at death. Psalm 49 is about death, how the unbeliever and the believer look at it. Now, what I want to do is start reading at verse 7. So if you're following along, Psalm 49 and verse 7, where now he's describing how the unbeliever regards death. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Full stop. Verse 12. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Now, how does the unbeliever described here look at death? And the answer is he doesn't. Never thinks about it. Doesn't want to think about it. The unbeliever's mind is focused on the things of the earth. And as the psalmist says here, he thinks he's going to go on forever. He lives as if there's no end. He goes to work every day, pulls down the paycheck, gets what he needs, invests the rest, tries to get on in life. And he sees people dying around him. He goes to funerals, verse 10. He sees, the, he sees good people die, he sees bad people die, and everybody in between. But he never takes it to heart. It never occurs to him, I've got to think this through. This is going to happen to me. Whether I'm good or whether I'm bad or somewhere in between, this is my fate. But then he gets rid of that thought as fast as he can and continues on. Man in his pomp with foolish confidence. Now look again at verse 18. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed... I, I'm rocking. I'm 30 years old in perfect health and doing great. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, I, I just won an award at work. His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. No thought, no facing it, no thinking about it, no preparation. But notice in verse 15, how does the believer look at death? And here's the gospel. Again, we talked about Christianity's answer. Here's the biblical answer right in Psalm 49. What does the psalmist do? Oh, I'm sunk. No. Look at verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. That's the statement of faith. Do you see the four-point gospel sermon there? Point number one, the problem, the power of death. Oh, the power of Sheol. There's no escaping it. 
I can't escape, even though I'm a believer, he says. Number two, my need in face of the problem. He says, my soul. My problem isn't my bank account. My problem isn't even my body. My real problem is my soul. And what's going to happen to my soul when the power of Sheol comes calling for it? What about my soul? And then what does he say? My trust, but God. My trust is in the Lord. And my trust is in what the Lord will do. Point four, the plan of salvation. What will the Lord do? I can't escape. I can't save myself. But I'm trusting in what the Lord will do. Well, what will the Lord do? The Lord will ransom my soul. From the power of Sheol, the ransom from sin. He will make the payment. He will satisfy the demands of justice and judgment against me. God will provide the living sacrificial lamb to cover my sins. And then he will receive me unto himself. That's my hope, the God of my salvation. Now, Someone says, well, that's Old Testament stuff. And that's Old Testament. Our Jesus never talked like that. But you see, you'll remember that our Jesus did. Our Lord takes up this refrain in Luke chapter 12. Remember the parable of the rich fool. Our Lord said, here's a man who's like this, like the one in Psalm 49. He's trucking along in life. Everything is rocking. Everything is cool. I've got the 401K. I've got the pension. I've, I got, it, it's, it's working. My biggest problem is knowing what to do with the money that I've got. And then Jesus says, Thou fool, you did not know that this very night God required your soul. Foolish. Foolish not to face it. Well, someone says, that's the unbeliever, all right, but fortunately we don't have that problem in our church. And that's why our Lord gave another parable at the end of His earthly life. You'll remember this one. In Matthew 25, the last week our Lord was on the earth. The parable of the ten virgins. That's a parable of the visible church. You and I are part of the visible church. And our Lord was saying, do not trust in that in the face of death or in the face of the second coming. Because there are... Five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The wise virgins made sure they had the oil of God's grace in them. They didn't trust. And they went to the Lord daily and weekly for that grace. But the foolish virgins, I'm aware that there's this thing that's going to happen in the future. Death, the second coming. I know but they lived as if they didn't believe a word of it. They took their own state in grace for granted. The problem with the foolish virgins was carnal security. Now, does this mean that you can lose your salvation at the end? No. What the parable means is that those who are truly saved depend on God's grace Daily, and do not take it for granted. But those who are not truly saved pay no attention to all that until it's too late. And so the great question is, which one are we? We want to be like Jacob, facing it, being ready. We want to be like Paul. You remember Paul, another one facing death in Second Timothy Chapter 4, he said, the time has come where I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. 
The time of my departure is at hand. It won't be much longer, he said. I know that I'm going to be executed. But then do you remember what he said? He said, I'm ready. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I'm ready. And henceforth a crown of righteousness is laid up for me by the Lord that the Lord, the judge, will grant to me on that day when he comes for me and all who love his appearing. Notice Paul's awareness, his peace, his confidence, his hope. He knows what his reward will be. And then he makes the promise to you and to me and all who love his appearing. Jacob was ready. Second, back to Hebrews 11.21. When Jacob faced death, he worshipped. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship. Now notice, first is posture. It said that Jacob bowed. And everything within him now, even his physical position, is going to testify to his holy resignation to the gracious and glorious will of God. The time of my departure is at hand. I am about to die. And I bow in humility and dependence and resignation to the glorious will of God. There was no disappointment. There was no despair. There was no lament, if only. No anger at God. Why now? None of that with Jacob. Jacob's focus was vertical, and his focus was turning to the Lord. Not turning away from the Lord, but turning to the Lord in worship. Have you ever thought about writing your own autobiography? What would that last chapter look like? Have you ever written a will? I'll get your attention. Have you ever written a last will and testament? Jacob did. He knew exactly what he was going to say. He wrote it out. We've got it, Genesis 48. And as Jacob started that last message of his life, he begins with... Turn to Genesis 48. Let's see what he began with. Genesis 48 and verse 3. Verse 2, And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, sat up in bed, leaned on his staff. And Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai. That's the Hebrew. It's a great, isn't that a great name? El Shaddai. God Almighty, Didn't we sing that today? Praise to the Lord, El Shaddai, the Lord God, the Almighty. Jacob began with God. And then in the verses that follow, he gives a summary, a quick summary of his entire life in terms of the Lord. Let's read it. Verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. There it is. Jacob's last will and testament. Why did he worship? He worshipped God because as he reviewed his own life, he remembered four things about God. Brethren, can you remember the four things about God that Jacob talks about? Those of you who are like me, can you look back on your life 
and see these four things? Look, what does he start with? God Almighty did what? He appeared. God came to me. I wasn't looking for God. I was running away from God, but God caught up with me. God appeared to me. God's grace. Then what did God do? Then he blessed me. God came to me and blessed me. Then what did he do? God came to me, blessed me, and said. God spoke to me. God's grace. God's blessing. God didn't come to me and make my life worse. He came to me and turned my life around. And then he spoke to me. God's word. And what was his word? It was the word of his promise. He said to me, behold, now this is what you got to do. This is what I'm going to do. Jacob, I will do this for you. And then I'm going to do that for you. And then I'm going to do that for you. I am going to put you in a right relationship with me. And then I'm going to make you an heir. I'm going to bring you into my heavenly family. And I am going to make you a co-heir with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I am going to reward you with an inheritance that you can't even imagine. All of these things I will do for you. God's grace, his blessing, his word, and his promise. Now I want you to notice verse 11, Jacob's gratitude. That was his response, verse 11. Remember, he's dying. Verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Do you see in the hour of death, Jacob is full of gratitude to God. He's not blaming God. My life was a mess. And it's your fault. All that's in the past, Jacob. And it's not God's fault. Jacob, it doesn't matter what your life has been to this point. This is it. These are your last moments. And what does Jacob remember? How gracious and how wonderful God was to him in letting him see his son and his grandchildren. Then in verse 15, 16, and 21, we have Jacob's sermon, worshiping God. Now remember, this is his last will and testament. We'll apply this in a minute. Look at verse 15. Let's see if you can figure out what Jacob's threefold testimony at his funeral was. Verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God's presence. God has been my shepherd. He's never left me. He never forsook me. Even with all my sin, even with all my mistakes, even with all my goof-ups, the Lord never left me. God's presence. Verse 16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. God's redemption. God protected me from sin. He protected me from evil. He didn't let me go the direction I would have gone if it had been up to me. He stopped me from making that decision that if I had made that, I would have been ruined. He kept me going. He kept directing me in the right way. Protecting me from the world, the flesh, and the devil so that I've come to the end of my life in one piece. How did that ever happen? It's because God redeemed me. He ransomed me. He bought me through the blood of Christ. The angel, that's the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, he redeemed me. And then his last point, verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Point three, Jacob's funeral sermon that he wrote himself, God's future plan. Jacob's essential confidence in the future 
was because he believed that God's plan was going to happen no matter what. It would succeed. God will do what he said, son, grandchildren. He will bring you home. Joseph, you trust in God. He'll get you there. That's what he was saying. I, my whole life, Joseph, has been a physical testimony to the faithfulness of God and having my future in his hands. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Didn't think it was going to turn out this way. But now, Joseph, now, boys, you can trust him with your future because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. When Jacob was almost at the point of death, he had a great awareness of the presence of the invisible God. He predicted the future of each boy and displayed his certainty that the purposes of God would continue through each one. He had only a few moments left on earth, yet he was still looking forward. God was real to Jacob, and his word was sure. How few people have that. How few elderly people have that. But that's how faith behaves. May God give that to each one of us. Now you'll notice lastly, back to Hebrews 11, verse 21. When Jacob faced death, he blessed. Isn't that what it says? By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now, we talked about Jacob's vertical focus, worship the Lord. And you'll notice now he also has a horizontal focus. Now he's thinking about other people. Jacob was too old to serve anymore. Jacob was too old to get out of bed. But even though he couldn't serve, he could speak. He could testify. He could witness. And that's what he did. Jacob was thinking of the future generation. His boys, his grandchildren, his people. What what would they need to hear from me? How could I help them at this time? What can I give them? And he thought of what God would do in their generation, in the future. He remembered that God's plan would keep going. His purposes of salvation would continue. The future was in God's hands. Boys, let me tell you, I know you're only about six years old, but you've got to hear this. The future is in God's hands, and his church is in his hands. And the future belongs to his people, boys. How did Jesus put it? The meek would inherit the earth. How did Peter put it? According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. We're not looking for a piece of real estate. Now we look for God's great plan in which he regenerates the entire universe and brings it into fruition at the second coming of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we look forward to. Well, look at Jacob. Come on, Jacob. Jacob, who are you looking at? Two kids, two grandchildren. Little Jacob, little Joseph, two grandchildren. They're not even mentioned in the history book. This was a tiny little group of believers in an ocean called Egypt, in another ocean called the world. Shouldn't Jacob be worried about that? Jacob was interested in the flock. He was interested in the body of Christ, Old Testament version. And he was interested in the plan of the covenantal God who would save that flock and give the new heavens and the new earth to that flock. Remember how our Lord put it. He said in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock. 
for your heavenly Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. Notice what Jesus said. He says, first of all, we are a little flock. There are not many of us. Don't you worry about that. Second, he says, this flock, the Father loves. They have a very powerful Father. We have a powerful Father, and He loves us. And it's His good pleasure, it's going to be His delight to give the new heavens and the new earth to that little flock, the kingdom. Yes, we're small. Yes, we're not many. But the key is what we believe and who Now, there's a lot of talk today about finding significance, finding meaning in life. You know, I'm a psychologist, and there's a whole school of secular psychology built around the idea that what really creates neurotic people is lack of a sense of meaning in their lives. So we've got to help people find meaning. We've got to help people find significance. Did Jacob have that problem? I, I didn't I don't know who that was. You're right. Jacob knew why he was alive. He knew the meaning of his life. Jacob, do you have a problem with significance? No. Well, why not? What was the meaning of Jacob's life? Learning what God's plan was and finding my place in it. And when Jacob found his place in God's plan, he knew exactly what he had to do every day. How did Paul put it? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Oh, I wish I could face death like that. Death will be be better. It will be a promotion. How do I get there? By living like Paul did. For me to live is Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of our lives. Is that the meaning of yours? People talk a lot today about leaving a legacy. You know, Stephen Covey, the famous author, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and and blah, 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 blah. Dr. Covey recommends that we start at the end and move backwards. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Right? I want them to say this about me. I want them to say that about me. Well, then live your life in such a way as that they'll say that. Now, that's called humanism. Notice what Jacob's legacy was. Jacob's legacy was not about himself at all. Jacob's legacy was look at the Lord. His testimony was about what God did in his life. Don't think about me. Think about the Lord. Look at what the Lord did with me. If he did that with me, Joseph... Ephraim, Manasseh, Roger, church, he will do that with you in Jesus Christ. Look to the future by looking to the Lord. And so I ask you today, what legacy will you leave? It's a good suggestion that's been made to write out your testimony to be read at your funeral. Have you ever thought of that? What a tremendous way to be like Jacob. Sat down with a 90-year-old man a year ago and helped him write his obituary, his own obituary. This is what I want the paper to say. I want this to be in the paper so that everybody's going to read it. This is what I want them to know. Have you written... Your obituary. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. What will they say about you at your funeral? Oh, that they might talk about me in the same way Jacob talked about the Lord.
so that like Abel, through your faith, though you die, you will still be able to speak. You see, for, for Joseph or Jacob, death was a test. And death is a test for us. It's a test to find out what we really believe. Will our faith be strong enough to carry us through even in death? Jacob's faith passed the test. And he passed the test because of the God in whom he believed. Death is also a door, isn't it? Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ said? For all believers, I go to prepare a place for you. That when I come for you, you will be with me. Death was a door for Jacob. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning. Is that the way you look at death? May death be the door for you and me to be with our Lord in paradise. And then, of course, death is a golden opportunity. That we learn from Jacob. This is the opportunity. Nobody sleeps through funerals. Nobody sleeps in the intensive care unit. Nobody sleeps when they're with a person in the hour of death. Everybody's listening. Last words are solemn words. It's a golden opportunity to worship, to bless others, and to testify about our great God and Savior. You know, in the early days of Methodism, you remember the Methodists? Some of you used to be Methodists. Maybe some of you are great. What matters is, are we a believer? I guess we all used to be something else. Charles and John Wesley were the founders of the Methodist movement, and they received a lot of abuse. Their people were spoken against, caricatured, and mocked. But there was one doctor, one physician, who happened to be the attendant at a number of deaths of the Methodists. And that physician made an observation, I'm reading this, to Charles Wesley who had watched a number of the Methodists die triumphantly. The doctor's words were these. Mr. Wesley, most people die for fear of dying, but I never met with a people such as yours. They are none of them afraid of death, but are calm and patient and confident to the last. Charles went home and told his brother, You're not going to believe what this guy said about our people. And he told John the story. And you know what John's response was? Well, they can laugh at us, but at least our people die well. How will we face death? May God give us the grace, like those followers, those Christians the Methodist movement in its early years, like Jacob, live in faith and confidence and peace and hope, knowing that when we die, it will be a time of triumph, worship, blessing, and yes, rejoicing. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are solemn things to talk about. We are handling very dangerous subjects and yet necessary subjects. Father, we above all know the truth of the reality of death and what it means. Yet we above all know the truth of how to face it, not in fear but in faith. And that is through the same faith that Jacob had, the same God, the same Savior Jesus Christ, before the cross and now after. Lord Jesus, receive us to yourself and give us living faith and dying faith to the uttermost. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.
respond. We stand.